my goodness. We have come through the weekend, and we now know the 16 teams still standing for the 2019 NCAA tournament. Welcome into the latest edition of College Basketball Coast to Coast. I am your somewhat lucid and somewhat capable host, somewhat lucid after 48 games, the barrage of them Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And now here we are with 16 teams left, and for the first time since 2009, the number one, two, and three seeds all advanced, all made it through as the favorites. Welcome in. What an amazing Sunday night game, Duke and UCF. Going to be a lot of conversation about that here on the program. As uh, that may end up, I'll say this probably again here in a little bit, that may end up being the game of the tournament, uh, depending on what happens. Final Four, National Championship for Duke to pull that one out. Uh, incredible drama. Duke survives. They're the brand. They are the brand name that drives the sport, and they were almost KO'd by UCF. I, I do this show out of Central Florida, out of West Central Florida. Uh, UCF's campus about 70 miles from where I'm sitting. They've been known for the football the last couple of years. Johnny Dawkins and the basketball were tremendous. They were valiant, including his son. We're going to talk a lot about it. Analyst Mark Wise will be here. Love his work. You can follow him, by the way, at MW Hoops. Mark will be here uh, to talk about the weekend, including the Gators game with Michigan that he worked, the Duke game, the rest of the Sweet 16. Matt Zimmick will be here after that, cbbtoday.com, and a frequent guest and contributor on this college basketball coast-to-coast podcast. A reminder, however you found us, uh, whether it's through Spreaker.com or CBBToday.com and the link there off of that website. Subscribe at iTunes and Stitcher. The podcast will come automatically to you as we come off the weekend. We're going to be in the preview mode later this week for the Sweet 16 games in D.C., Louisville, Kansas City, and Anaheim. The podcast will come automatically to you on iTunes, Stitcher. Subscribe away to College Basketball Coast to Coast. And it will come to you. So, uh, again, Matt Zimmick a little bit later on. Mark Wise straight ahead. Uh, We're going to talk so much about the Duke-UCF game coming up with both of our guests. Amazing. Amazing with Zion Williamson and all the potential that he has. By the way, uh, as somebody that said for weeks on this podcast and other places that Zion Williamson would be back to try to help Duke win a national championship, uh, do you understand now with what happened in the ACC tournament and what happened in that game on Sunday night, how much they need him, how integral a part of their moving on is based on whether he plays or not, and what great drama, what great theater with Zion Williamson right in the middle of it. Uh, Amazing. And the ratings are up. They're up big. We'll talk more about that on the show. Duke back in the Sweet 16 again, looking for another Minneapolis Final Four, where they've been the last two times the Final Four has been in Minneapolis. Coach K looking for yet another national title. And it was almost his former player, his former protege as an assistant for him, Johnny Dawkins, and UCF that knocked him out. So we'll talk some about that. Great uh, games across LSU all the way back at the beginning of the weekend with their last second win over Maryland on the Tremont Waters layup. That fantastic finish, the great comeback by Iowa against Tennessee. Uh, There were battles all over the place. What about what Purdue did to the defending national champs, Villanova? Mark Wise is going to be talking some about that. Gonzaga still rolling, another Sweet 16 for them, as they were very impressive on the weekend, basically unchallenged by uh, either Fairleigh Dickinson in the opening game or Baylor in the second game. They'll get a challenge now from Florida State. It's deja vu all over again. Sweet 16 in Southern California for Gonzaga and FSU. And Leonard Hamilton back in the Sweet 16 again with FSU looking strong. 5-8. ACC teams are there, including North Carolina, including Virginia, uh, being able to get their wins as number one seeds. How about what Auburn did to Kansas? 
They just destroyed Kansas with the three-point shot. Mark will talk more about that uh, in a little bit. So many games to cover across the board. We'll do our best to touch on or talk about all of them uh, as this uh, podcast unfolds. A reminder, too, as we head uh, towards the Sweet 16, start looking now for the best tickets that are going to be available in D.C., in Louisville, in uh, Kansas City and in Anaheim, go to our friends at Vivid Seats. They are proud sponsors here of what we're doing on college basketball coast to coast. Vivid Seats, the Vivid Seats mobile app. You're going to find great selection, tremendous customer service and support, 100% guarantee on your purchase of the tickets. And we've got a promo code for those great for those great seats. Use the promo code TJ Basketball Ten and take 10% off your order. Up to $50. If you're a first-time user on Vivid Seats and the Vivid Seats app, the promo code again is TJBasketball10 for the 10% off. TJBasketball10. Use that promo code and use the great selection of the seats with Vivid Seats and the Vivid Seats mobile app. So let's get to it. Let's start talking up all these games. I'm sure that we will talk at length, Mark Wise and I, and Matt Zimmick and I later on about Duke and UCF. But there's 16 teams now left. A lot of favorites that are now left. Let's come off the weekend and discuss it as part of college basketball coast to coast. Here we go. Oh, yeah. What a weekend. So uh, I do on college basketball coast to coast have to bring in my guy, the analyst, ESPN SEC Network, as well as Florida Gators Radio. And he does a fantastic job with me and has for many years working the March coverage, Sirius XM, Fox Sports Radio, and now on tune in as we march towards Minneapolis and the Final Four. Mark Wise will be with me. Coach, good to be with you. All right, let's jump right in. As I like to say, head first off the high dive into the deep end. Duke, UCF, what a ball game, what a finish. It may arguably end up being the game of the tournament. We don't know. We don't know how it plays out with the Final Four in the National Championship game. What a game. I've already made a couple of comments, your initial comments, about the finish and the Duke win by one. Well, before we get to the finish, how about the game plan by Johnny Dawkins? I, I just thought it was so creative uh, of putting Taco Fall actually on Jones. So you've got your seven foot six guy who's guarding the point guard for Duke. And then Florida, I mean, excuse me, uh, UCF just uh, basically dared some guys to shoot on Duke's team. Um, so it made it very difficult for Barrett to get open looks. You know, again, Zion can score in different ways in terms of putbacks, but the scheming that went on on the UCF side I thought was brilliant. And then to counter that, how about Coach K throwing out the complete defensive uh, game book in terms of what he threw at UCF? They played a little 2-2-1 at times that created a couple of turnovers when they were um, um, looking not in a good way. Uh, they went to straight 2-3 zone a couple of possessions. So from a coaching perspective, I-, I thought it was a brilliant game to watch in terms of both coaches and the moves that they made. Well, they know each other so well, as I alluded to a little while ago before you came on, because Johnny Dawkins helped establish Duke into being Duke back in the early 80s and has been an assistant with Coach K. So you knew that was going to be such a chess match. What cannot get lost here in all of the talk about calls, no calls, missed calls, UCF had this game, Mark-wise. They they had a fast break with the ball up by four with about a minute left. 
that Aubrey Dawkins doesn't put the alley-oop dunk in, doesn't lay the ball in that was going to obviously put them up by six. Uh, Again, they gave a great program, a great version this year's team, an opportunity to come back and beat them, and Duke took advantage. But, uh, I mean, for all – this is what I'm saying. I want your thought. For all the talk about uh, shot clock violation review and missed foul call and was this a foul or not, UCF had them in the final minute and could not finish them, and credit Duke for part of that too. That's my thought, your thought. Well, uh, again, a lot of discussion, should they have pulled it out? Uh, it's such a high-risk play at that point in time. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but at that point in time, I, I want to step on the jugular. And so I, I, it's two-on-one. I mean, you're supposed to convert on a two-on-one situation. So I actually like the play. Uh, it's one that I think Aubrey Dawkins is going to make nine times out of ten. So maybe – you know, we keep coming back to this, and I keep coming back to this. One of the things that, that I'm a huge believer in is that if you're going to make a deep run in the tournament, somewhere along the way, you've got to catch a break. Somewhere yeah. along the way, the basketball gods have got to smile on you. Well, starting with that play and then all the things that happened in the last 20 seconds, I would say Duke used up their breaks for about the next five years. <laughs> Good lines from Mark Wise. Mark has been saying that for years. Uh, because it's true, and it's proven true uh, time and again. All right, I'm just going to go over the end sequence of the game here again. There's a lot of scuttlebutt everywhere on the airwaves, on social media and the Internet about breaks Duke gets, calls they get, things that go their way. Let's just review real quick, and and Mark, uh, I've gone back and looked at this, and you know a lot, if not all, of what I'm about to say, but here we go. So Duke is down by two, and Zion Williams is called for an offensive foul that was questionable at best with 2.43 to go. So for the, oh, you never, you never see a call against Duke in the clutch, that was an enormous, and it was his fourth foul too, by the way. So now it's UCF's ball. They go to the other end, and, uh, and that's the, uh, the whole sequence with B.J. Taylor and did the ball hit yep. the rim. So yep. let's stop right there. Because they're now up four because of the play. They have a review. Mark, your thoughts, and then I have thoughts about the replay review, and they let the call stand with UCF up four. Well, um, again, they're within their purview to go and review it, and we all want them to review a play like that. I looked at it. I'm watching it. I'm watching it just like everybody else was. I'm watching all the different angles. I thought they ended up making the right call. In terms of the block charge uh, going backwards, uh, again, this is always the most difficult play for any official to make. Um, Again, what they did, again, I'm coming back to the scheme. Everything, every time Zion touched the ball, it was B.J. Taylor, who was his first uh, defender that that saw him. And B.J. Taylor is UCF's best defender at drawing charges. I mean, he, he's got a good anticipatory step defensively. And so from that standpoint, I thought he got his feet set. I thought he got his feet set on the one at the end, but we'll get to that in a few minutes. Um, I, I get it. I, I, I think, yes, Duke took advantage of the breaks that they were given, but, man, were they given some breaks. Well, and, you, and again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elaborate on this, and I take a different opinion than you. UCF got a huge break on the shot clock violation, no shot clock violation. To me – 
So you could tell it didn't hit. Uh, I mean, to me, there's two angles, Mark. There's an overhead angle where the ball clearly doesn't hit the rim, where I see No, it doesn't because the ball ball eliminates your sight of the rim from that view. Well, okay. That's why they didn't make the decision based on that. So piece both together. First of all, we got a ball above the rim with space in between on replay number one. So it clearly did not nick the right side of the rim or the left side of the camera because I see space when the ball comes across it. Then when they show the low-level slow-mo of it, the ball, again, does not change direction. It only changes direction when it hits the backboard. So I thought on both of those angles pieced together, it clearly did not hit the rim, and they clearly could have said didn't hit the rim. My point larger is UCF got, you know, you talk about breaks like you're talking, UCF got the break on that one. Because they got the put back, they got I the. I agree with back. that. Yeah, but I don't think they could have overturned based on what they saw. I, you know, the like, overhead view is irrelevant. Once the rim disappeared from that view, that view, that shot was irrelevant. Well, uh, again, you, you can go on and on about piecing them together. I pieced the two together. I, I love that slow mo, low angle does, from the right side. You can't piece them together. Well, I'm telling you, that view is irrelevant. Once the rim disappears, when that ball goes over. That that view does not come into play anymore. Yeah. Well, and again, uh, you know, they they don't. And here's another important point: they don't hear the announcers when they're over there because the announcers were going back and forth. Grant Hill, uh, Bill Raftery, Jim Nance. The ref, and we need to be clear about this, Mark. The refs don't hear that. They're not being influenced by that. And in the case of the NCAA tournament, they're not being talked to by a command center. For example, the SEC has a command center where they're talking to them. They just have to make the decision on the fly, right, and look at it. I thought the lower angle uh, again. I thought it was. I thought there was enough doubt, and we we seem to be using that term uh, a lot in a lot of different ways beyond a reasonable doubt. <laughs> so I don't know that that view showed anything beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, I think if it had been called the other way, TJ, it had been called the shot by shot clock violation. I don't think they would have overturned it either. All right, uh, again, we're spending a lot of time on the Duke-UCF game. I promise we'll get to the other games, including the one that Mark worked with uh, Florida and Michigan, and he also saw Michigan State and Minnesota in the same arena and a couple of the other games that stood out for him off of the weekend uh, that now sees the Sweet 16 set and all of the ones, the twos, and the threes advanced on to the four sites, Washington, D.C., Louisville, Kentucky, Kansas City, Anaheim, uh, so we, we have a lot of the faves, and we're going to talk to Mark about that in a few moments. All right, so let's get to the very end sequence, which, again, we, we made mention Dawkins misses on the alley-oop. Duke comes down with a, a man, just a cold-blooded three by Cam Reddish to get them back within one. Um, and, and then there was a controversy. Okay, did Aubrey Dawkins get hit on his jumper or not? He was complaining. They let that contact go. It was a miss. And we go to the other end. And Delorier ends up getting fouled and misses both free throws. Huge break right. for UCF that has nothing to do with anything other than miss-miss. They get the rebound, and now they have the opportunity to basically put the game away up one. B.J. Taylor, they call a foul on Duke with 45 seconds left with Taylor going to the basket. So, again, I, I'm just belaboring. But not No, it's that not, but I, not I'm just sure. I'm just belaboring. For those that are in the Duke gets all the calls and they never call anything against them, B.J. Taylor got a foul call in the final 45 seconds. Yeah, but that's your, again, you're connecting dots that don't go there. That, that was a foul. I agree. I agree, but they still have to call it, and that's what we're coming to for the Zion Williamson play. 
uh, as well at the end. So Taylor makes one out of two, and that sets up the crazy end sequence because now it is a three-point game instead of a four-point game. Uh, when right. William when Williamson comes to the other end, he goes to the basket. And again, Mark, I'll let you pick it up from there. They called the foul. They gave him the hoop. They called the foul. What did you think there of that final end sequence in that situation? Well, again, first of all, B.J. Taylor tries to take the charge. There's a no call there. Um, Which I liked. Zion, did, you like, did you like that? I like the no call because he's in the way. He's not set. He's I trying to flop. His, I did not see his arm extend. So uh, I like the no call there. there. And when he goes on and attacks the rim, I thought it was an absolute foul on Taco Fall. No questions asked. Um, and, and then that sets up the free throw, of course. <laughs> Which and we'll get to in a second. What? All right, so social media went crazy on the Taco Fall play. I agree with you. We're in agreement now in this part of the conversation. There's two points. The first one is... Obvious he, foul. Yeah, he's not completely set. His right foot comes off the ground and he makes body contact, and his left foot's in the restricted area, which is an automatic block, which which renders it all moot. And this is the winning play where he's using his body to stop the guy. You have to call that a hundred times after a hundred, don't you? I totally agree. And his arms weren't vertical. He he violated verticality. I, that was an obvious foul. All right, so then we get to the free throw, which is missed. And again, there's more. Oh, well, well, Duke is pushing from behind, and one of them is a hook under the arm trying to get the ball. Again, your opinion on the offensive rebound that is put back in there by R.J. Barrett to give Duke the lead by one. Your thought? Well, what I first saw on the first replay was Aubrey Dawkins did not step back into Barrett. He did not, he did not make an aggressive box out situation so he allowed Barrett space to operate was there a little bit of a push yeah but was there enough was it obvious at that point in time I didn't think so I did think and I didn't even know this until hours later uh I I do think because they have the ability to go back and review in this situation they had to go review the hook and hold how that was missed and I'm going to say this with this respect there's a fourth official also, who's part of this equation, right. who's sitting courtside, not only as a, as a potential substitute as if anybody uh, were to get hurt as an official during the game or cannot continue, but he's also part of the collaborative process in terms of looking at reviews and whatnot. I just thought they should have reviewed it. I didn't think there was a – I'm telling you, TJ, with 10 minutes to go in the game, that is a flagrant one. It's not even – it's not even remotely close. It is a classic hook and hold. Okay, so on the dynamics, be clear for the audience here on College Basketball Coast to Coast as we call this uh, here uh, as we go over this with Mark Wise. On that non-call, the fourth official that's sitting there can't just suddenly wave his hands or, or hit the horn, for example, no. to stop play. In the dynamics, that can't happen. And so I'm clear and everybody else is clear. If they haven't made a call there, which they did not, they can't suddenly go over and look at it and now officiate the play. Am I correct on that? Because you've preached that before. They would have had to have made some kind of call there to be able to go look at it and review it, right, in the dynamic. Well, at the next – no, no. They could have reviewed at the dead ball Okay. when, when UCF takes the timeout. But even um, if they didn't make a foul call, they can go back and re review that oh, for absolutely. hook and hold. Okay. And again, they chose not to because yeah. 
Because clearly there is a dead ball later when UCF called timeout. UCF came in the front court and called timeout. So you're right. saying in that instance they could have looked at it. They did not. And then we get to the final. I'm, I'm telling yeah. you, I didn't even catch it. I didn't even know it. And I'm looking at every and, replay. And, and I, I got to be honest, I, I got no rooting interest here in Duke or UCF. On the hook and hold, it's it's maybe a three on the scale of ten. Because, again, the UCF player puts his arm up around the chest of the Duke player uh, in that in that instance, it is Reddish that is coming to try to tip the ball. And so at that point, he's not blocking out with his rump. And in low position, he's blocking out with his arm and impeding him. So, uh, again, that could have – I, I like the play on there on that. And, again, one final point here as we wrap up the Duke conversation. UCF got not one but two looks at it at the very end. Again, you could have maybe called the bump on B.J. Taylor on the shot. He got that call earlier. I like the play on, and Aubrey Dawkins is right at the rim again with a chance to win the game with one second left and could not put it back in. So much happened. I mean, you had about an eight-act play there, Mark Wise, in the last three, four minutes yeah, of the game. It's, it's, it's the drama uh, of the tournament. It, it's, um, it, it's, it's what we call great theater. Um, it's really a shame that somebody had to lose the game. I, I keep coming back to that because my, one thing is, Duke didn't. Did they get fortunate at the end? Absolutely. But did they have to play well to beat UCF? Absolutely. That's going to get lost in all of this. Is how Duke was able to overcome the scheming at times of UCF. And first of all, they also had to overcome what was a spectacular performance by Aubrey Dawkins. Yes. So from that standpoint, it's not that. Duke didn't deserve to win, but certainly they were fortunate to win. Yeah, they and they move on to the Sweet 16 yet again. A uh, couple more items uh, just of note. Uh, if we have any doubt that Duke drives the bus and why we're talking so long about it, uh, the announcement has come on Monday now that the uh, broadcast window last night for CBS and the cable networks as well as the streaming with the Duke game as the catalyst in that final seven Eastern time hour, adjust your time zone accordingly, where the game was ending, the ratings were up more than 25% from a year ago. It's the second highest rated um, yep. Sunday night window in the last 29 years. My friend, that's not just spelled CBS, that's spelled D-U-K-E. That's why we know what we know, right, Mark? Uh, again, uh, everybody always ask me, how come you guys, and I'm talking about ESPN broadcast, how come you guys are always promoting Duke, Kentucky, Kansas, the Blue Bloods? Well, there's a simple reason for that, because they produce the ratings. There's no question about it. And that game got a 12 rating, largely based on the 7 p.m., not even in prime time, largely based on the 7 p.m. window, which had to have about a 14 or 15 rating, millions and millions watching the conclusion. That's why we love the NCAA tournament. All right, so I have I have uh, talked at link with you about that game. I don't want to do a disservice to all the other games. Let's get to what you worked on Saturday, Florida and Michigan. Michigan threw again to the Sweet 16 uh, under John Beeline. You saw them firsthand. Florida was game. Michigan better in the second half. Your analysis of what you saw and how good Michigan was real quick. Well, everybody knows that this is John Beeline's best defensive team, uh, but I thought Florida got really quality looks in the first half and didn't knock down the open threes. And when you 
have that opportunity against a defensive-driven team like a Michigan, you better take advantage. And Michigan's defense was better in the second half. They made some adjustments, choked Florida off. Florida only scored 21 points in the second half, and Michigan won um, basically going away. And they did it without Brasdakis being a, a big factor in the game. And yet Michigan is right back where they've been. They'll play Texas Tech, who won easily over Buffalo uh, Sunday night. So that matchup will come out in Anaheim. Again, we'll talk more in the preview mode later in the week on college basketball, coast-to-coast, about the actual matchups. I'm looking to recap more of what happened on the weekend. You also saw Michigan State as a two-seed handle Minnesota uh, very easily, especially in the second half. Cassius Winston, fantastic. Your thoughts? You were in the arena for some or all of that, watching Michigan State in Des Moines, Iowa, advance to their uh, latest Sweet 16. Well, again, it's a, it's another team that I think has reinvented themselves uh, late in the season. Um, and I'm talking about all the injuries and situations that Tom Izzo has had to deal with this year. I, I personally think Michigan State is playing their best basketball of the year on both ends of the floor. Uh, and and when, you get, when you have great point guard play, isn't that the catalyst really? for NCAA success, and, and Michigan State has that uh, with Cassius Winston in terms of what he brings to the table. And I know you said this on the weekend, repeated here, for all the great success Tom Izzo has had, this this one is up there. It may not be the best by yep. itself, but it's up there in terms of what he's gotten out of this team and how they've excelled in the last three or four weeks of the season, yes? Yes, no question about it. One of his finest coaching jobs. They won the Big Ten regular season. They won the Big Ten tournament. They're back in the Sweet 16 impressively. They'll now play LSU coming up. Again, off the recap of the weekend, whether it's the LSU great finish that started the second round off with the win over Maryland, with Waters getting the layup in the final seconds, whether it's the fantastic comeback by Iowa against Tennessee, whether it is Auburn, and you called this, by the way. Bravo. I'm clapping for Mark Wise, my analyst. You called Auburn and Kansas – uh, that looked like a Mike Tyson first-round knockout from the 80s with what they did to Kansas in the first five minutes of the game. So with the buffet in front of you of the other games, give me a game or two that stood out and why. Well, I was really surprised at some of the spreads in the game. I was surprised how easily Florida State beat Murray or how easily Texas Tech beat Buffalo, how easily Purdue beat Villanova. But I want to go back to the LSU game. Because one of the things that has been lost that no one wants to talk about, when LSU got the ball with about 42 seconds to go in a tie score, if you'll go back and look, Waters by himself in backcourt gives a little signal. And I'm willing to bet that Tremont Waters understood that they needed to go two for one, but they had to do it quickly. So Skylar Mays read that, and they took the two-for-one opportunity, and that's what actually won them the game. They made the three. Maryland answered with the three, and then that sets up the Waters' last-second last heroics. But it was one going two-for-one. Well, and you've preached that for a long time, too, that if you've got well beyond like 38, 40, 42 seconds left in a game – Go get a quick, good shot, not a, not a ridiculous, out-of-control shot, but go get a quick, good shot because you're guaranteed to get the ball back uh, if you get the stop and get the rebound, et cetera. And it worked out for LSU. Uh, still without Will Wade, they win 
dramatic. They had trouble with Yale in the opening game in Jacksonville. They obviously had trouble with Maryland down the stretch, but found a way to win. They're in the Sweet uh, 16. Kentucky survives against Wofford. Uh, what else did we have? What about the Iowa comeback as well against Tennessee? It looked like a Tennessee team that you've been familiar with and have worked several of their games on the ESPN family of networks and the SEC network. It looked like Tennessee was going to give away a an historic 25-point lead to lose right. an NCAA tournament game, but they hung on. Mark, your thoughts? Well, I, you know, I, I've watched Tennessee in both of their wins here in the tournament, uh, starting with the first-round game against Colgate. They just don't look fluid to me right now. Uh, if I'm Rick Barnes, that's a concern. You, you know, he, he opted not to put Admiral Schofield in uh, down the stretch of the game, and that worked out. And uh, it's a very connected Tennessee team, but when you blow a lead like that, I think uh, I think that's a major, major concern. They were very fortunate to win in overtime. Yeah, Tennessee will play Purdue. I will also throw this in, and again, I have no specific love for the Vols. You know I'm a Memphis Tiger on the other side of the state, but there is something <laughs> to be said for repeatedly winning close games, and Tennessee, time and again, has won close games. Yes, they lost the LSU game, the one overtime game, but you saw them beat Ole Miss narrowly uh, at the end. They beat right. Vanderbilt in a game that they probably shouldn't have. It shouldn't have been that close, but it was, and Grant Williams helped pull that out in Nashville. You look at this game Sunday, there's something to be said for being able to win in the clutch. Yes, it's living dangerously, and it may get you beat coming up in the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight if you keep going to it, but there is something to be said about veteran players leadership. I mean, I just thought at the end of that game, Grant Williams is not going to let them lose at the end of regulation in the overtime. And he made plays, and some other guys made plays, and they are through to the Sweet 16. Anything else, including Sunday night, where Oregon advances to the Sweet 16? I mean, this is what we love about the tournament. Oregon was not in. On the weekend of the Pac-12 tournament, they played their way in. They got the automatic bid. They're back in the Sweet 16. Yeah, I gave you that one. Yes, I you gave did. You the twelve, thirteen. It's a game. It's a t- team that's, uh, you know, found their stride late in the year. They smoked through the Pac-12 tournament. And please, I've said this before: no Pac-12 basketball jokes this time of the year. Um, but what they again? They're getting the great inside-out combination in terms of Pritchard and Wooden, Wooden and and the supporting cast. So. Uh, from that standpoint, uh, probably playing with house money uh, now, but I like their draw very much when I saw that they drew Wisconsin, who just cannot score in a consistent way. And and then I thought Kansas State was damaged goods because of Dean Wade being out. So I thought that that was the easiest 12-13 uh, pick I've ever done, uh, <laughs> and that's played out. Um, but, again, uh, I, I come back to the Kentucky-Wofford game. I mean, Fletcher McGee goes basically over right. shooting threes, and Kentucky wins by six. I, I Again, I hate to keep harping on the same things, but if you're not healthy, that's not conducive to making a deep NCAA tournament run. P.J. P- P- Washington will need to get back on the floor if, if Kentucky is going to have any hope of making it to Minneapolis. And right, and Kentucky uh, was able to rest him, and we'll see how the foot is. Now they will play Houston, and they actually get the extra day of rest on to Friday. We'll see if he can play in that game. And, and a lot's being made of Fletcher McGee and all those three-pointers, and uh, Wofford had a tremendous season. You worked their championship game, the Southern Conference title game, on ESPN back a couple of weeks ago uh, to begin championship week. 
you've got to credit Kentucky's defense some, too. They were bothering him. They were harassing him. Oh, they were outstanding. It wasn't just that he was only missing on his own. They were guarding him, and that's why they're Kentucky uh, in some ways. So uh, give them some credit as well. Uh, Anything else? Anything else? I want you to have the soapbox. I want to ask you one more before we get out of here, Mark Wise. Anything else that stood out from Mm -hmm. the 16 games of Saturday and Sunday that advanced 16 teams to next weekend? Yeah, again, Villanova, uh, Purdue waxing Villanova. You know, Carson Edwards was so good in the game. And so everybody wants to talk about the most recent game in terms of overreaction. I mean, what a run for Villanova, though, to to come through the Big East again. I mean, (laughs) Jay Wright has done more. Lost four players to the NBA and still had a Big East champion team and still got to the second round, right? Absolutely, and how about the job that Matt Painter's done in terms of losing four starters off that year? Now, the guy he had back, in terms of what I talked about with Carson Edwards, uh, he's pretty good. Yeah, and Harms in the middle, and they've got some other guys that can score as well. So Purdue shows big. The Big Ten showed big. The ACC got five through to the Sweet 16. The Big Ten and the SEC got four more through. One more thought from you. It's, again, only the second time uh, ever since the field went to 64 teams in 1985, that the ones, the twos, and the threes, all 12 of them won both games and got to the Sweet 16. Do we say that that has some stability there, some chalk there? What do you make of that? Well, I, I first of all, the metrics all season long, and when we when we start watching bracketology in earnest in January. Uh, there was a di- distinct separation between what I thought was the top eight and the next tier. So I'm not surprised at all about the ones and twos. I guess the threes are the ones who have, have surprised me. You, you know, LSU and all that they've had to go through in the last couple of weeks, Purdue in, in terms of uh, not playing their best basketball in February. And then you, Houston, I've always liked. Texas Tech, I've always liked. And yet I've I thought Buffalo would give them trouble, and they did not whatsoever. So I guess I'm surprised a little bit at the threes. But really, there was a separation, I thought, in the top eight in the country and everybody else. And and we haven't given any love to Gonzaga and North Carolina in this conversation. Gonzaga in the Sweet 16 for the fifth time in a row. North Carolina's been there about 85 times, I think, from the Dean Smith (laughs) uh, to uh, to, uh, Bill Guthridge to, uh, to now Roy Williams. They're there every year. Houston, by the way, in the Sweet 16 for the first time since Phi Slamma Jamma in 1984. 35 years ago since Houston was last in the Sweet 16. That's what we love. Promise me this. I love the debate. I love the back and forth. We're going to preview games later in the week on college basketball coast to coast when we get to Thursday and Friday. You're going to be back to do that a little later in the week, my friend. Absolutely. And again, College Basketball Coast to Coast being brought to you in part by Vivid Seats and the Vivid Seats mobile app. Whether you're looking for tickets for the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8 in Washington, D.C., Louisville, Kansas City, or all the way out west in Anaheim from where I am, Vivid Seats has got you covered. And remember the promo code TJBasketball10. Take 10% off your order, up to $50 off that initial order. If you're an initial user to Vivid Seats and the Vivid Seats mobile app, sign up, use the promo code. 
code TJ basketball 10 and take 10% off of your order with Vivid Seats. Again, for the best seats, great customer service, 100% guarantee on your order. Go use Vivid Seats and the Vivid Seats mobile app. And again, one more time, the promo code is TJ basketball 10. Let's roll on here with more insight and analysis from cbdtoday.com. And also this very podcast, Matt Zimmick is back with me. I think I heard the exhale from you and from everybody else. Oh, after, after we completed 48 games in four days, 16 more of them on Saturday and Sunday, we now know the Sweet 16. How you feeling? How you feeling as we come off the weekend? We now know the Sweet 16. What do you, what do you think? Well, you know, there, there are always mixed emotions on the Monday after the first weekend of the NCAA tournament because you, you just, you know, you're, you're, you're glad to not have to watch basketball for at least 24 hours if you can do something else with your life. But you also know that, you know, one of the most action-packed weekends of the whole sports year is over, and now it's really just a few select games uh, you know, on the road to the Final Four and the national title. So, you know, and in many ways, TJ, the conference tournament Thursday and Friday, to me, are like two of my favorite sports days of the year, even better than the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. So, you know, this, this weekend, you know that most of the journey is now behind us. And so there's a certain uh, undercurrent of sadness, but there's definitely a lot of excitement given that uh, you have so many top seeds left in the sweet 16 you have so many two versus three matchups for instance uh in this bracket actually there are four two versus three uh sweet 16 games so that is certainly something to look forward to well i was going to ask you that towards the end of our conversation but you went ahead and, and brought it up here so it's a great time to talk about it it is only the second time first time since 2009 second time since the field expanded to 64 that we're going to get four of those two versus three matchups. The top three seeds in every region advance. Some would say that takes away from the charm of the tournament. All those others would say, hey, the better teams are still in there and still alive. It's better matchups. Where do you come down on the mix between the two? You know, and my, my response to this, not just this year, but every year, it's not so much the seeds that do or don't advance. It's how they advance. And so over the weekend in the second round, you know, there were a lot of not very competitive games, or at least games that weren't particularly close heading into the final five, six minutes of regulation. What matters to me is that the top seeds get pushed and that you have dramatic games. So Duke got pushed. And, uh, you know, Virginia was sweating with 15 minutes left against Gardner-Webb. And Kentucky got pushed by Wofford. And... Other high Tennessee by Iowa. Tennessee by Iowa yeah. Sunday early. Ten, ten, and Tennessee was pushed by Colgate. So, you know, it, it, in, in instances where high seeds get pushed, it's, you know, it's not a letdown for the high seed to advance. It's a letdown for the high seed to win without getting tested at all. That's the real measure of a, of a good NCAA tournament. Obviously, if you get the huge upset, uh, you know, that that's a memorable moment, but it also leaves what I call a bomb shelter bracket in the <laughs> second weekend. You know, hey, you know, no offense to Oregon, but who wants to see Oregon, Virginia? I mean, that that's not a sexy Sweet 16 game. We're glad we have these two versus three matchups 
So, you know, it's good to have one really big upset that obviously adds a little excitement to an NCAA tournament, but you don't want 12 seeds against 16 seeds or nine seeds in the sweet 16. That's not what you can't, you came to see. You want the heavyweights mostly at, at this stage of the NCAA tournament. You know, if you want, if you want a 12 seed or an underdog, you want one that, you know, seems to have national championship or at least final four potential. I mean, you think of Dale Brown, who would always get LSU as an 11 or 10 seed, you know, to make a run or Jim Beheim in Syracuse. You had, you know, the zone defense, yep. you had a star player who could make a run. I don't see that in Oregon. So it's good that the higher seeds advance, but on the larger level, TJ, it's more about do the high seeds get pushed? And, you know, if you compare this tournament and other recent tournaments to the NCAA tournaments of 25, 30 years ago, Top seeds get pushed more these days. It, it's just not the cakewalk. It used to be on the same scale. Yep. I mean, Iona led North Carolina by five at halftime. I don't think anyone seriously thought Iona was going to win, but that game was interesting in the first five to seven minutes after halftime. You didn't have that very often 30 years ago in That's the NCAA correct, tournament. Because everybody's so, got so there's players. Some subtle, very true. There, there are some subtle details that a lot of fans aren't grasping in terms of, you know, whether top seeds advance or not. It's more about the competitive quality of the games. And that is better today than it was 20, 25, 30 years ago. Sure. Didn't mean to interrupt, but yes, everybody's got players now and everybody can make the three point shot, which is a great equalizer. I mean, we saw it from, uh, from Liberty and their upset of Mississippi state and Virginia tech. We saw what, how Colgate was staying in with Tennessee with the three. We saw the Iowa comeback. Uh, again, that's a power five. Uh, with their, their comeback being fueled in part by the three-point shot, it is such a great uh, equalizer across the board. Wofford, which lived on the three, and including the threes of Fletcher McGee, had trouble making them. McGee made none of them, and it's one of the reasons why Kentucky moved on. Again, as we were saying with Mark Wise, uh, credit Kentucky's defense. Uh, for a large part of why Fletcher McGee struggled the way that he did. But the three-point shot as an equalizer, look at what Auburn did to Kansas on Saturday. I mean, I, I don't know. Kansas has never been embarrassed like that in the first half of an NCAA tournament game, ever, by that kind of margin. Bill Self called three timeouts in the first 11 minutes trying to stop it, and it was primarily, again, Auburn blitzing them with three-point shots. Matt, real quick. It was, and the you know the thing that strikes me about Auburn, TJ, is that winning that game against New Mexico State, the way it did, the players were ashen after that game. They didn't act as though they had won. It kind of felt like a loss because they know they choked and somehow got away with it. That was the perfect scenario for Auburn, and it's the perfect scenario for a lot of teams in the one-and-done nature of the NCAA tournament to be able to win – when you get away with something and yep. when you when you falter, boy, to lead into the second game of that weekend, you know, you're breathing fire because you want to prove yourself. It was the perfect lead-in for Auburn. Whereas if Auburn had won that game in a pedestrian fashion by 13 points, that factor wouldn't have been there against Kansas. So it, this this is this reminds us of Roy Williams saying, and it's not as though others haven't said it, but I, I know particularly that Roy Williams is fond of saying this, the NCAA tournament is not one six-game tournament. It's three two-game tournaments. And so having a struggle bus in the first game 
to lead you into the second game and to get you through that two-game mini-tournament, that is part of how you advance deep in March. So um, that, that, that's my big comment about the Auburn performance against there Kansas. There you go. Matt Zimmick, cbbtoday.com. Great uh, analyst of the game here with us. Great writer of the game. We love what he has to say as well on college basketball, coast-to-coast. And again, however you found the show, subscribe. iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you find podcasts, go and find us on college basketball, coast-to-coast. Our friends at Spreaker.com and also cbbtoday.com are helping spread the word here about this podcast. We'll be more in the preview mode of the Sweet 16 on Wednesday and Thursday. you got to be proud of me. We have talked about eight or nine minutes, and I haven't brought up the Duke-UCF game. Are you proud of me? A little bit? <laughs> I haven't brought it up yet. I saved the best for last. you got to be a little proud of me, right, Matt? A little bit? You're a number one seed, TJ. I, I think so. And Duke is a number one seed, and they are still alive. I have said a bunch about this. Mark Wise said a bunch about the ending. We went back and forth about the ending. You have the floor, Senator. You can say whatever you like and whatever you thought about the ending. Uh, Some controversy on calls. No calls. Go ahead. Well, this was Shakespearean basketball theater. And I say that not simply because of the drama or because Duke was the villain and UCF was the feel-good story. It's because Mike Krzyzewski's first really treasured player in his long and storied career at Duke was Johnny Dawkins, the point guard on the 1986 Duke team that made Krzyzewski's first Final Four and first national championship game. So, I mean, Johnny Dawkins is like a second son to Coach K, and Coach K is like a second father to Johnny Dawkins. And so the central a person on the court was not Zion. It was Aubrey Dawkins, Johnny Dawkins' son. He was the reason UCF was in position to pull off the upset. He made so many incredibly difficult shots. It's not as though Duke's defense was bad in this game. Dawkins was hitting ridiculously tough jumpers again and again and again. And here he was, the son of Johnny Dawkins, about to to give Johnny Dawkins the greatest win of his career against his mentor and second father, Coach K. And then what happens in the final few minutes? Aubrey Dawkins drops that perfect lob pass for a dunk, which would have put UCF up six. He fails to box out against R.J. Barrett. Now, some will say that Barrett pushed him. He probably did nudge him, but we see that a million times in basketball all the time. And what you have to do when you box out, you have to get your butt low. Yep. And, and Dawkins did not get his butt low. He did not root Barrett out of the paint. He stood straight up, so he allowed himself to be nudged under the basket. So, I mean, you can say it was a foul on Barrett. I wouldn't really argue with that, but it happens a million times in basketball, and you have to be physical in butting the other guy out of there. Dawkins ball-watched. That's why Barrett got that put back. And then at the very end, Aubrey Dawkins missed that, that tip in, which was right there off the glass. So you had, you know, a story of fathers and sons and second fathers and second sons with the coach K Johnny Dawkins, Aubrey Dawkins triangle. And you had Aubrey Dawkins putting UCF in position for a historic upset and then making the bad plays in the final moments which enabled Duke to survive. So that is Shakespearean. Mm. It was extraordinary theater. Yeah, it was great theater. Okay, so Mark and I weighed in uh, on the 
shot clock violation, no shot clock violation on the B.J. Taylor shot. Eventually, UCF got a putback. It's an enormous play in the game with about a minute and a half left to put UCF up by four instead of only by two. The good news is you haven't heard what our opinions are. The podcast audience at this point has heard it. So I like this. This is like in those game shows back in the 50s and 60s and 70s when they would put the guy or the gal in the, in the little phone booth with the earphones on and you haven't heard what we're talking about. So I now, fresh, I want your opinion. Did they get it right? When you looked at the review, what did you think? Uh, should the call have stood? Would you have overturned it? You have the floor again, Matt Zimmick. All right, so the conclusive angle from this sequence was the angle above the basket looking down, you know, from the top of the backboard, the camera mounted on the top of the backboard. When you look at that angle, that conclusively shows the ball did not hit the rim. So it should have been a shot clock violation. CBS kept showing the the forward-facing angle from, like, the side of the court, uh, you know, near near the – the 28 foot hash mark, you know, behind the three point arc that did not prove anything. But the other thing that people missed, and I don't think the CBS, you know, Jim Nance, Bill Raftery, Grant Hill ever brought it up. If you notice something about the flight of the ball right Mm -hmm. after it crossed near the rim, you will notice that there is that gray padding under at the bottom of the backboard and the ball hit that gray padding and that, that is what gave the ball a somewhat redirected flight, and people are perceiving that the ball hitting the rim uh, redirected the flight, but it was the ball hitting that gray padding which redirected the flight after it missed the rim. So that is, that is a specific detail that I don't think anyone else has brought up. Good point. The, the, the view from above the backboard is what shows the ball never touching the rim, so Duke actually did get jobbed in that sequence. And people are so conditioned. And, and I will admit, Duke does get a lot of calls historically. I would also say that the um, foul on Taco Fall against Zion at the very end, I, I would not, I think that was a play on. I thought Fall was vertical at the point of contact. And then he brought his arms down after contact. Uh, so, I mean, you know, that was a call I think Duke got away with. But that um, shot clock violation, that was a, an errant call. And, and even though it was Duke, the team everyone likes to hate, we have to acknowledge that the ball didn't touch the rim. Matt Zimmick here with me. All right, so you should know, because now I'll reveal it like the game show host, although I'm not going to do it in the game show host. Now, let's see <laughs> if he wins $25,000. Uh, so you agreed with me that the overhead angle is the conclusive angle. Mark, Mark Wise had a mini stroke. Because he wants to uh, convey to everybody that, in his mind, once the ball crosses the plane above the rim, you can't judge it anymore. I don't buy that. I see space. We know the ball's in the air above the rim, and I see space between the orange ball and the orange rim, which means it didn't touch it. And I further agreed with you, the ball only changed direction when it hit the backboard, or as you said, the bottom of the padding. The ball doesn't change direction coming over the top. And I, I threw out there, why have replay? Now, you should know, you and I are in agreement on the replay. You and I disagree on the block of Taco Fall, and Mark Wise actually agrees with me that Fall's got a foot in the restricted area, which is a problem. His right foot leaves the ground, and his body bumps Zion Williamson. Matt, to me, again, everybody's opinion is different. 
to me, you got to call that. And, and you, you can't let that be a play on because he's bodying him and there's a chance the shot's not going to be made. you gotta call, You got to call that uh, if there's contact. So that's just my opinion. Again, we're all entitled to our opinions, so I just thought that was interesting to let you uh, play that out. And one more on the whole thing about calls, no calls. I was going over this with Mark. For everybody that wants to say Duke gets all the calls, they called a fourth foul on Zion Williamson for an offensive foul with 2.43 left in the game and Duke down by two. Enormous call, Matt. Enormous momentum call because they could have potentially fouled Zion Williamson out of the game at the other end of the floor a couple of times uh, if they had chosen to. Uh, again, near the end of the game, B.J. Taylor got a foul call with 45 seconds left going to the hoop and went to the line. They called a foul on Duke. Believe it. It happened. It happened. They called a foul on Duke with 45 seconds left while they were losing. So uh, I'm just uh, I'm pointing, and it all comes down to UCF had two cracks to win the game with Taylor going to the hoop, couldn't make the shot. Aubrey Dawkins couldn't put the ball back in, or else we're talking about UCF and Virginia Tech in the Sweet 16. Duke, uh, Duke definitely survived. There is. A, do you have a final closing thought on all the in sequence and all the stuff? Anything else? You know, just that. You know, there are there have been times in the past when Duke has certainly gotten calls. I recall the 2010 regional final in Houston against Baylor. There were some calls uh, involving Brian Zubek, I think that uh, other instances as well. But the idea that Duke gets calls, it's not necessarily an errant thing, but you just can't automatically bake in that narrative and bring it to every new game. This this would not be an instance in which Duke got all the calls, so you can't just automatically and reflexively apply a narrative to every new game just because of the past. You have to judge each new situation on its own merits. Love this. couple minutes left with you. You've been great to give me all this. What else stood out from the weekend? Give me a game or two, team or two, player or two, whatever you like. 16 advanced. We've talked about some of them, but what else stood out? Real quick. Well, you know, so if Tennessee had lost to Iowa, we would all be talking right now about that horrible overrule. And it was an overrule. The the official in the Iowa-Tennessee game who was nearest a play when Iowa was shooting a three-pointer down 70 to 67 late in regulation. The official who was in the proper officiating area, I've officiated basketball, so I know what it means to have an area of responsibility on the court. The official who was in the right area said there was a block shot, and it was. It it wasn't even close to a foul. foul. But the other official on the other side of the court came over, overruled his partner. And so this is a problem, not just that the, the official in the wrong area made a bad call, but also that the, the, the official in the proper area didn't take his partner aside and say, no, you're wrong. You're not going to overrule me. This was my area of the court. I am going to stick by my call. The official didn't do that. So he allowed his partner who was in the wrong area of coverage to overrule him, can I and interject? if you remember that play, I thought, I thought it Tennessee, have, yeah, uh, Tennessee was headed down court for an yes. easy bucket, so it's not just that Iowa got three foul shots it shouldn't have had. Tennessee would have scored, so that was a five-point sure. swing, and thank goodness Tennessee won that game, so that we're not talking about that call quite as much today. But I, the officiating has been atrocious. You ha- you know, There are lots of bang-bang calls such as like the, the uh, R.J. Barrett non-push of Aubrey Dawkins. You, know, you could have called that a nudge, but that, that would not be an egregious missed call. But, but in Tennessee, Iowa, and in several other instances, you know, 
perfectly good defense is being punished with a horrible foul call. And you just can't get those basic things wrong. There are tough calls you can get wrong, but you can't get the basic stuff wrong. And I'm seeing much too much basic stuff being called incorrectly in important moments of this NCAA tournament. Sure. I didn't mean to interrupt again, but I had a point to make about, I thought the official coming in on the Tennessee-Iowa play inadvertently blew his whistle. And it was like, oh crap, when he did it. Because it was, and, and so then they've got to come up with, okay, is it a foul or did I inadvertently blow my whistle? Because you're right, Tennessee's got a fast break and arguably layup, if not dunk, at the other end. And now you're going to put Iowa at the line to tie the game with three free throws, which they did. It was a mess. And, and thankfully, it did not decide the game. It was decided by the players after that and the overtime after that and give give Tennessee credit. And by the way, uh, Iowa, huge with the free throws. I know you're Mr. Free Throw Awareness and the hashtag FT Awareness Month. Iowa, five for five in the final 15 seconds, including those three free throws, uh, needing all of them to tie the game. Those are the ones New Mexico State didn't make against Auburn, by the way. Uh, down by two, three free throws, two of them misses. You got, a, you got the hashtag FT Awareness Month for a reason there at the end of that game. So Tennessee survived what would have been a 25-point meltdown and would have been the largest deficit ever overcome by a team to win any NCAA tournament game ever to be down 25 and come back and win. But Tennessee survives, and they move on to play Purdue. One more game, team, or something? I didn't mean to sidetrack you. One more that stood out from the Sweet 16, Matt Zimmick. Well, you know, there, there, there weren't too many of them. I mean, I mean, Kentucky and Wofford showed that Wofford at seeded number seven was entirely appropriate. And if anything, maybe even Wofford should have been a six. You know, so Wofford really made its statement about the Southern Conference and just how good that league was all year. Wofford, you know, being 21-0 and 0 in the Southern Conference, that was not a product of the SoCon being weak. It was a product of Wofford being strong. Wofford showed that it belonged with the big boys. So that, that's a big story which shouldn't be forgotten uh, in a Sweet 16 which doesn't have any mid-majors. Wofford, nevertheless, uh, lived up to the hype and then some. Sure they did. And Liberty, a tremendous performance against Mississippi State, uh, played well and had the lead for some of the game with Virginia Tech before Virginia Tech overcame them. We saw UC Irvine. How about Oregon? Back to that game. Oregon goes 10 minutes to start the second half without a point and Irvine got back in the game was in great shape but only to have Oregon put it away at the end we saw mid-majors we saw one bid leagues come in and take their swing uh, and a lot of them had success in this tournament early on and had chances to win even in a sweet 16 game so that's the that's the charm of this as we put a bow on uh, on what happened this weekend anything else anything else coming off the weekend we now know the sweet 16 we'll preview it more later in the week on college basketball coast to coast anything else matt zimmick that you want to hit on well just that you know with oregon dana altman is now the only coach to take two 12 seeds to the sweet 16 and he did it both as a 12 seed coming through san jose he did so in 2013 and faced a number one seed in the, in the Sweet 16. That was Louisville back then. This year he's facing the number one seed, uh, Virginia. So uh, Dana Altman is one of those wizards, and I think he's clearly the best coach in the Pac-12. Well, and say something again for, for all the talk about uh, the Pac-12 and the toughness of, uh, of the Pac-12 and, and how good it was or wasn't. 
Uh, that Oregon team won four games in four days, and you only play the teams in front of you. They beat Wisconsin, which we talked a lot about in the preview mode. They would have a great chance to do. You only play the team in front of you. They were better than Irvine. Now they get a crack at a one seed in Virginia. We'll see what happens with that later in the week. Read this man more, cbbtoday.com. He's already got stuff on the on the website early on here on Monday and early in the week about John Beeline in Michigan. You also have a comparison of regionals, right, that you've just recently written that is up on cbbtoday.com, comparing what regional to what regional, Matt Zimmick? So I'm comparing the upcoming Midwest regional in Kansas City, uh, North Carolina, Auburn, Kentucky, Houston, with the 1986 West Regional, and I will. Uh, I won't give away the teams from that one. Go read uh, it. You can read about go the historical comparison. That is a tease. We love. We love the tease. Go sure re- is. Go read the historical comparison at cbbtoday.com. This man is also the purveyor of the hashtag FT Awareness Month. I chime in as well. Uh, free throw awareness month still in progress, and uh, we saw some big time foul shooting help. At the end of games, we saw at the end of UCF and Duke miss free. Keep in mind, Duke has not been a good free throw shooting team much of the year, and it almost bit them. Delorier missing both free throws in the clutch. Zion Williamson missing the free throw while down by one. It almost bit Duke. Shoulda, coulda, woulda, but Duke is still alive. Again, they need to keep going to uh, the the Twitter handle is at FT Awareness Month. The hashtag. Hashtag FT Awareness Month because we're monitoring it, Matt Simmons, with the free throws. And the, the Twitter handle, FT Awareness. Yes. Thank you for that. Uh, we can exhale now, and uh, I look forward to talking with you in the preview mode coming up later this week for the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight, sir. Thank you. Now the dance gets more intense now. And there you go. That'll do it. Recapping the weekend that was, we thank Matt Zimmick for being immediately with me here as part of College Basketball Coast to Coast. Follow him at Matt Zimmick, Z-E-M-E-K. Also, find him on College Basketball Today's website, cbbtoday.com. Go read that article comparing the Midwest Regional now to the 86 West Regional. I love that comparison. And all the writing Joe Nardone, his staff are doing coming off the Sweet 16 in the preview mode of the Sweet 16 and the Elite 8 for these 16 teams coming up. Thanks also to Mark Wise. Find Mark on Twitter at MWHoops. Great insight and analysis and back and forth on all the games in the Sweet 16 coming up. Love talking with him as well. You have found us either via Spreaker.com or via CBBToday.com. Subscribe as well at iTunes or Stitcher, and the podcast comes your way. We will take a brief respite here for a day or two and then come back in the preview mode on College Basketball Coast to Coast. Spread the word on social media. Follow us on social media at CBB Coast to Coast on Twitter. Again, the show will come automatically to you if you subscribe, but we'll be back with a new one in the preview mode for Thursday and Friday. Friday's games, 16 more to come. From Southern California to the Midwest, to the South, to the East, we look forward to talking about the Dukes, the Carolinas, the Gonzagas, the Virginias, and all the ones, the twos, and the threes that are still alive. It is all part of the Sweet 16 coming up. Thanks for the recap on the weekend of round number two on this edition of College Basketball Coast to Coast. I'm TJ Reeves. Subscribe to the podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Uh, That is upcoming in the preview mode for Thursday and Friday for this 2019 NCAA tournament. We'll have it for you on College Basketball Coast to Coast.